This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For the last 24 years, Sylvia Luke has taken part in the opening day uh, session of the legislature. But this year it's a bit different as she sits in the lieutenant governor's chair and is charged with two very ambitious plans to expand preschool programs and broadband internet. We plan to hear more about both. But today, as the state prepares to launch the Keiki Ready Cakey plan, we asked about the chain of command as various entities prepare to spend $200 million to build new preschool classrooms. Here's Luke coming off opening day of the session, ready to work. It was just so inspiring for me, you know, you know just to see newly elected legislators having this enthusiasm and uh, just being so grateful to be there. You see some of the former colleagues seeing them in different capacity. It, it was really great uh, just to be there. I recall the time when you and, and uh, Scott Psyche, you know, were freshman lawmakers. And, you know, now you've got a whole new crop in the House eager <laughs> to get involved in the process. Exactly. So, yeah, I guess the fresh start, new beginnings is, is always um it's, it's good. great. Yeah, it's really good because we have uh, legislators who are in their 20s and they bring different perspective and they bring great energy. And they just recently got out of their respective races, too. And when you're in competitive races, then, you know, you find out much more in depth about, OK, what are the great needs in the community, what are some things that people are talking about, and even if it wasn't competitive, just to come out with that perspective of just coming out of the election and getting all feedback and interaction with the community. It's just a lot of great synergy coming into this session. Well, you know, one of your big causes or areas of responsibility this session will be, you know, the preschool uh, launch and that plan uh, to build new classrooms. How is that supposed to work? Just because you're going to be interfacing with so many, you know, different entities, right? You've got the new school authority, uh, you know, you're going to have to deal with DAGs. So how does that look from where you sit? Yeah, so we were happy to announce the uh, Ready Cakey initiative this um uh, just this past Tuesday, and I'm very excited about this. Uh, you know, I remember being in high school, and that was uh, decades ago, and I remember the superintendent at that time, and that was in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and the superintendent and the elected officials at that time talking about we're going to make sure that all three and four-year-olds will have access to early education by year 2000. And year 2000 came and went 23 years ago. So can you imagine every generation of leaders talked about the importance of preschool education, the importance of getting kids ready to learn. And it's not just about preschool education. It's about giving parents the opportunity to go back to work so that uh, while they know that their kids are in a safe and learning environment elsewhere. And it's not being able to give opportunities for working families to have affordable preschool program, affordable childcare program. It's really a social justice issue. So I was so happy that the governor allowed me to take on this initiative. This has been something that has been important for a while. And that's why in 2020, when I was finance chair, I, along with the House and Senate leaders and the governor at that time, Governor E, passed the law saying that, okay, we are going to commit to making sure that all three and four year olds will have access to preschool by year 2032. Last year, when I was finance chair, I exceeded what's known as the school facility authority with $200 million in construction funds so that they can build out preschool classrooms. So the Ready Cakey initiative is the goal to use the $200 million to build as many classrooms as we can because I am finance committee trained and thanks to I have great staff what we are doing is it's a data-driven approach so we took a look at what is the current underserved pre-k population count 
we have about 35,000 kids who are three and four year olds. Out of the 35,000, 50% are currently served by some type of a pre-K program. A lot of it, of course, is in the private sector, close to 18,000. So there's 18,000 private seats and only about 900 public seats. So in comparison, you know, you can see why it hasn't been affordable because in the private seat, parents have to pay for those expenses. What we understand is perhaps about 20% of parents will not send their kids to any kind of preschool setting because they trust their relatives or they they don't want to send their three-year-olds who are basically still babies, right, in an institutional setting. And we understand that. The underserved population we're trying to capture come out to about 9,300 kids. So what does 9,300 kids mean as far as preschool classrooms are concerned? So if we have 20 kids per classroom, that amounts to 465 classrooms. So if you look at it and break it down in that formula, then 465 classrooms, trying to build that out in the next 10 years, is not an impossible task. So how are we trying to do this? We're looking at, as opposed to in the past, kind of a one-size-fits-all of Preschool build-out should all be in public elementary schools. You know, we tried to do that model. And then I think Governor Abercrombie tried the all-public private model, which is using public monies to subsidize private preschool, uh, but he had to change the Constitution, and that failed because Mm -hmm. that is really not a good method on its own either. So what we looked at was we wanted to look at, it's really family choice and it's really about what is important for working families. So we're tackling at all levels. So first of all, we did a first round of survey to elementary school principals and working with the Executive Office of Early Learning, we identified immediately over 60 classrooms that could be built around the state either renovated or they have space under elementary school. That's very exciting because this is looking at classrooms that are not utilized right now that could be converted right away. So that's 60. In addition to that, I asked the charter schools to see if if they provide K-12 education, would they be willing to open a preschool program? And several of them immediately said yes. So we're looking at opening about 30 new preschool programs at charter schools around the state. In addition to that, we don't look at it as just building out, constructing a new classroom or renovating a new classroom. With every new classroom, you have to have teachers. So how do we work on the teacher pathway? The two methods are through the university system. So working with the university, we are looking at building preschools on all UH campuses. And the reason for that is they will not only provide preschool programs, it will be a teaching pathway. So you have young adults who are interested in going into this field, working on site, on campus, providing services to preschool kids, and then working towards a degree. That will also be mirrored in um, select high schools. So if there are high school pathway where kids who are interested in entering this field, we are planning to build preschools on three high school sites as a preschool pathway. And then we're also looking at libraries, parks. And so we're looking at all levels of where things can be built. I go back to the construction issue, though. I mean, if you're going to have these classrooms renovated or built, you know, from the ground up. You know, I was calling around to try and understand like the permitting process, you know, do Mm -hmm. do you have to go through DPP and I, you know, and and checking with DAGs and and, uh, and DPP about that. And I I, I think that I think some uh, state agencies might be exempted from going through the county review process, but they do anyway. Uh, Right. You know, that that was just one concern is that, you know, is there going to be a bottleneck uh, in the permitting process? Yeah, one of the great things about this collaboration is all the counties are involved in this discussion. So they will be helping us through sorting out the permitting and the county processes as well. Because the classrooms that we're building, a lot of it will be standardized modular classrooms. So we're hoping that that will help speed up some of the county permitting process because 
they will all be similar. So if an inspector comes and needs to look at it, you know, it's not going to be residential property where things are different and you have to check everything. It will be all standalone modular classrooms where they can come and look at it in kind of in mass. How does this work as far as the different agencies, you know, with, with the school authority, the facilities authority? I mean, is there is there a clean uh, chain of command, you know, because you, you are going to be interfacing with all these different agencies? That's a really good question. And I think that's why and the role that I'm playing is I feel, you know, I'm I'm fortunate to be in this role because a lot of times departments think in silos. You know, if you're a Department of Education, you have the responsibilities and duties within the Department of Education. If you're DAGS, then you look within the jurisdiction of DAGS. But as Lieutenant Governor, you can break the silos, reach beyond the various departments and see if we can figure out how to work together. So right now, trying to build on university sites because the money went to school facility authority, we're having an agreement between the school facility authority and the university to come out with a a shared responsibility where as long as the school facility authority is comfortable with transferring funds to the university, allow the university to build. If it's going to be at DOE site, uh, transfer the money to DOE for DOE to build. And if it's if it will be at the libraries or charter schools, allow DAGs to build. So we are looking at different um, ways to work in conjunction with many of the departments. And we're meeting regularly so that everybody's on the same page. That was Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke, who we talked to earlier this morning. She was outlining what needs to be done to spend $200 million to boost preschool programs across the state. Our teacher shortage is just one of the issues lawmakers will try and address this session. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us today to look at some of the education priorities. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, So again, this session, the teacher recruitment and retention is going to remain a top priority. And as you heard from uh, Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke, pre-K is also top of mind for a lot of uh, lawmakers and advocates at this session as well. Uh, I spoke with uh, House Education Chair, Representative, Representative Justin Woodson, he says, obviously expanding public pre-K capacity and advancing efforts for the recruitment and retention of teachers remain the big issues for the upcoming session. Uh, as you heard from Sophia Luke regarding the allocation of $200 million to the School Facilities Authority to look for uh, places within the state inventory of buildings that they can convert into pre-K uh Uh, classrooms, expanding that, either building or renovating uh, current campuses. But also another thing is affordable housing. Affordable housing seems to be uh, rearing its head time and time again for teachers. uh, And Representative uh, Woodson says this is gaining more traction. Well, regarding teacher housing, again, that's an issue or an area that continues to aggregate support. And so that's something that we can do as a legislative body that helps address that specific issue of teacher recruitment and or teacher retention because it's something that can help with teachers in particular's cost of living. He says he says it's also a great for recruitment because if people are looking for uh, maybe a job in education and knowing that there is teacher housing or there's that option, maybe that'll attract more people to going into the profession as well. Also spoke with Representative uh, Janae Capella of Hawaii Island, also supporting public pre-K, affordable housing. Also, she wants to move away from uh, standardized testing to something called authentic assessments. Basically, what that is, is um, applying classroom education into real-world scenarios in the form of projects. She uh, cites Kau's, Kau High School's INA-based program, where students would uh connect with community organizations, UH Hilo, and the university system to grow their own food, to then uh, sell the food, or to give to those community organizations, and learning what they uh, retained in the classroom for that purpose. 
Other measures that she's uh, looking at is uh, improving maybe charter school funding and teacher pay for char at charter schools. Also, as well as addressing sex trafficking at schools, maybe training educators to identify the uh, signs of uh, maybe someone who is being exploited uh, within the student body. But one particular uh, measure that she is introducing is making co community colleges free for high school graduates. I think that our community colleges are so underutilized. And I think that they're also this really great pathway to access higher education. Not everyone wants a four-year degree. That's understandable. Not everyone wants to go to college either. But there are a lot of students who count themselves out of college because they feel like they could never afford it. Why start the process if you feel like you can never get there? So I feel like a lot of students shoot themselves in the foot because they feel like they're not good enough or they don't have access. And I want to be able to shift that mindset of, not trying and instead trying because you don't have any barriers. Obviously, that will cost money. Um, money is obviously the big thing for making something free. And this is uh, Capella's reasoning or kind of her outlook on spending for something like this. We have a $2 billion over $2 billion surplus that we're coming into this year with. It takes less than $20 million, according to UH's own data, to fund entirely community college for free. Why not educate our communities? Why not give them access to education if we know that it's less than $20 million and we have a $2 billion surplus? We need to invest that money into our communities. Beyond these measures, I'm introducing a number of revenue generation proposals that really are about funding our future. And beyond that, education is the one thing that so many politicians talk about during an election cycle. And this is our time to put our money where our mouth is. And also spoke with uh, the Department of Education. It is the start of a biennium budget this year. Uh, there's gonna be a huge ask. I believe they're gonna be asking for roughly $181 million for this first year, and then more than $200 million in the next year. A lot of that is going to support um, services and initiatives such as health, student health and uh, safety, as well as getting more funds to the school level for equipment, for certain programs, for additional staff, things like that. Also, uh, capital improvement is another issue for uh, the Department of Education. Uh, a lot of these buildings are aging, and we have some really old campuses that use up a lot of electricity. And if you've seen your HECO bill uh, lately, obviously that is going to affect the Department of Education's uh, operations as well. So they're going to uh, look at capital improvement to make these uh, facilities more energy efficient. Yeah, I mean, I know when you talk to also about the uh, housing, you know, you need incentives for teachers to go out to maybe some of these rural schools, you know, so that would be another incentive. Exactly. And rural uh, school education, uh, funding for rural schools is also a priority for Representative Woodson as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. Casey. Thank you. We've been talking with HR's Casey Harlow. Look for his story on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in Travel Industry Management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Today on The Daily, Pentagon reporter Eric Schmidt on how the West is supplying more and more powerful weapons to Ukraine and what that escalation tells us about the future of the war. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Our reality check today with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the controversy of fentanyl test strips. Reporter Paula Dobbin joins us today. Good morning, Paula. 
Good morning. So, yeah, tell us about this. I, I didn't realize that this was a, a growing issue across the country. Um, yes. Well, as you know, probably overdose deaths are really on the rise nationwide. And here in Hawaii, fentanyl is a major cause of the growing death toll. Um, and there's a simple tool that could stop a lot of these deaths, and these are these fentanyl test strips. But unfortunately, they're illegal in Hawaii, as they are in about 19 other states. And uh, this came to light fairly recently when some groups um, who serve people with substance use disorders started handing them out, and they were advised by the police that they shouldn't do that because they're actually illegal. Yeah, so I'm sure the folks that uh, are trying to you know, uh, save people's lives were, were, were pretty shocked about this. Yeah, they were. Um, Heather Luntz, who's in my, Lusk, who's in my article today, um, she is the executive director of the uh, Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center. Um, she was about to launch a statewide program to distribute uh, fentanyl test strips uh, with Department of Health funding. And just before the program was about to launch, she was told that she should uh, hold off because um, she was the health department was informed by the attorney general's office that the fentanyl test strips are illegal. So that took her by surprise and others. And so here we are. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to get in trouble with the law, but at the same time, you are trying to help people uh, figure out if, you know, the pills that they've got might be laced with fentanyl. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this seems like a no-brainer that these test strips should be available in drugstores, at health clinics, um, nonprofit agencies, like wherever people can go. Um, and what's also ironic is you can just order them off of Amazon. Interesting. So uh, what's the penalty if you are, uh, you know, um, are caught with this and, and you shouldn't have it? Um, you can be fined up to $500 for having a single fentanyl test strip. Um, if you provide one to a minor, you could be charged with a Class B felony. Wow. Uh, I, I wonder, has anyone gotten in trouble with the law over this? Um, I reached out to the AG's office with that question yesterday, but so far I haven't gotten a response, so I couldn't tell you at this exact moment. Okay, but, but basically the advocates are saying, look, uh, if this was legal, uh, you could uh, help folks detect whether, you know, the, the, the drugs that they've got um, could kill them. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, it is a pretty simple test. I mean, you just dissolve whatever your substance is in some water, you stick the test strip in it, wait two minutes, and, um, you know, if it's a single line, then there's no fentanyl detected. If two lines show up, um, fentanyl is detected. It doesn't um, measure the amount of fentanyl in the solution, but, you know, a tiny, tiny little bit of fentanyl will kill you. So, um, you know, the tests are very basic, but they give you the information that you need to have. I'm just wondering, like, do the law enforcement folks have access to this? Um, I, that I don't know, but I, the um, there is a police captain on the Big Island Fentanyl Task Force who I interviewed for the story, uh, Captain Thomas Chopay, and um, he personally is in favor of decriminalizing these test strips. You know, he... He uh, heads up the criminal investigation section for the Hawaii Police Department on the west side of Hawaii, and he sees a lot of these overdose deaths. And you know, he he himself says that this law needs to be changed. Um, you know, thankfully there is a state senator, Senator Joy San uh, Buenaventura of uh, Puna, and she has promised to draft legislation. Uh, and introduce it this session that would uh, change the law so that these test strips are no longer considered drug paraphernalia. And then your story talks about how there is some federal funny, uh, money to help with the fentanyl crisis across the country. Yes, uh, the Biden administration has made uh, tackling the opioid crisis uh, a priority and um, there's a lot of federal money available. I believe in September it was announced that $1.6 billion would be available to communities across the country to um, fund programs and initiatives that would uh, try to save lives. And fentanyl test strips are a part of that. But right now, because of our existing law, we're not eligible for, for some of that money that would specifically allow the test strips to be distributed. So we'll just see how this uh, bill, when it gets introduced, you know, how, how it uh, works its way through the system. 
Yeah, exactly. Hopefully um, it'll pass. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Paula. You bet, Catherine. And that was reporter Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Farm Lovers Markets with its inaugural Family Fun Fest featuring hula and hula lessons, cakey storytelling, hula hooping, and more, 4 p.m. tomorrow at Fisherman's Wharf at Hakawone. Farmloversmarkets.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Neil Douglas Klotz, author of Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the teachings of Jesus as spoken in his native language. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. The White House released its National Strategy for Equity, Justice, and Opportunity for Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities this week. The plan outlines how 32 federal agencies will work to promote safety and equity and address critical priorities for those communities. Crystal Ka'ai is the executive director of the initiative. The Kamehameha Schools alum grew up in Pearl City. HPR's Russell Subiano sat down with her. Here's Ka'ai. Just right off the bat, can you talk about some of the highlights of the national strategy to advance equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islander communities? So we rolled out an historic first ever national strategy to advance equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities that includes a holistic report from the federal government, including 32 federal agencies on ways that they plan to advance opportunities specific to our Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islanders. Some of the highlights of that include accomplishments from the administration. In less than two years under the Biden-Harris administration, we have built the most diverse administration in history, including having a historic number of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islanders throughout the entirety of the federal government. This includes our first ever Asian American Black and woman vice president, Kamala Harris, as well as additional members of the president's cabinet who really serve at the top levels, the most senior levels of our government, as having representation for our communities to, to really be a voice for all AA and NHPIs, but also more broadly for all Americans. And in terms of some of the other just specific points in the strategy, there are seven strategic priority areas that we identified as being cross-cutting issues of concern to Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander populations. And this was based on robust community engagement and stakeholder input, as well as assessing the work of prior administrations to see what were some of those longstanding inequities that you know, continue to persist. And we know that unfortunately, so many of these longstanding challenges were really exacerbated over the past nearly three years where we saw a rise in anti-Asian hate predominantly on the mainland, but we know this has been unfortunately very significant just seeing the alarming rise in hate crimes and incidents impacting Asian American communities, but also you know, the need for greater access to a number of resources due to the COVID pandemic, whether that was you know, ensuring we we're doing more to promote health equity, address educational and economic challenges that our communities were facing, housing, you know, really across the board that there are so many really bold and strong commitments that are made in our rollout of our national strategy to advance equity for our communities. And so that we're really proud of a lot of that work. In particular, there are a number of key provisions that are specific to the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community, as well as our broader Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander population in, in Hawaii. And I think those are really critical points to highlight. And in particular, the Department of Interior is one of our federal agencies that made very strong commitments to uplift the needs of our Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities in ways that have not historically been done under prior administration. So, you know, I think there's a lot of really exciting work that we are doing, as well as a number of commitments, really bold and ambitious commitments that are made in this strategy. And we are looking forward to continuing to implement a number of these actions moving forward. Can you talk about the timeline from the signing of the executive order to this publishing of the, of the national strategy? 
Sure. So as you mentioned, the president signed Executive Order 14031. And so my appointment was announced in that kind of announcement rollout, having you know me on board and we started to staff up. We started to work on just our interagency coordination within the federal government, our stakeholder engagement with community leaders and business leaders all across the nation. And what we decided to do was, you know, just given the, given the sprawling nature and broad scope of our executive order, we really decided to hone in on the most cross-cutting and pressing issues, both the immediate challenges impacting our communities due to the rise, as I mentioned, of anti-Asian hate, pandemic, you know, related concerns, health disparities, economic disparities, educational disparities that were exacerbated, but also looking at these longstanding issues that have existed, quite frankly, for decades, including the need for greater language access for our limited English proficient communities, as well as the need for greater data disaggregation, which is something that the state of Hawaii does really well, but is not done very well at the federal level consistently. So we know that, you know, in order to truly understand the disparities and to advance equity, we need to be able to understand the unique issues that diverse AA and NHPI communities are facing. And, you know, we know that our population is not a monolith. You know, what the Native Hawaiian community faces may be different than other Pacific Islander communities versus our Filipino, Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese communities. So that's something I know, again, in the state of Hawaii, you know, the state understands very well, our, our local communities understand very well, but it's not a practice that is widely used at the federal level. And it is something that we are trying to do to change that dynamic and that dialogue, because we know, again, that when you aggregate, when you put all of our data together, oftentimes you don't see some of those disparities that exist. And that's especially true for our smaller populations in the native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community who are, you know, a relatively small percent of the overall U.S. population, but face some of the most stark disparities in terms of, you know, whether we're talking about poverty rates, educational attainment, health equity, all of these issues, we would know that we have to really be able to delve deeper into the data to truly address some of the unique needs and challenges that our subpopulations face. So that I think for us, you know, has been a really big priority just across the board. That's nice to hear because from my vantage point as someone who lives in Hawaii, somebody that's both Asian and Hawaiian, it seems like a lot of federal policies have been focused on kind of, I guess, larger minorities but it's kind of nice to see that the federal government is drilling down on kind of what seems like the next largest group of minorities. And one of the biggest inequities here in Hawaii is housing. The available land is limited. The rental market is tight and the medium home prices hover around a million dollars. Does the national strategy include helping level the playing field for the native people of our state? Absolutely. As part of the national strategy, we have 32 federal agencies that included specific commitments as well as accomplishments. And one of that is the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD for short, which deals with the nation's housing needs and, you know, ensures that, again, that we have strong, sustainable and affordable home programs for, for all communities. So in the plan, it does outline specifically how the Department of Housing and Urban Development at the federal level has helped to support affordable home financing needs for AA and NHPI homeowners. It also talks about specifically for the Native Hawaiian community, what has been done to support Native Hawaiian families. And in particular, one of their highlights is how investments have been made, in fact, $5 million worth in terms of funding for Native Hawaiian housing block grants under the American Rescue Plan that the president signed very early in his administration to provide critical rent and utility assistance to Native Hawaiian families. And also how, you know, HUD is continuing to support Native Hawaiian homeownership by issuing mortgage loan guarantees representing millions of dollars in mortgage capital to Native Hawaiian families. So that's just one example, but there are others listed in the um, overall action plan. And I would encourage, you know, the listeners to take a look at those plans and read a little bit more about a number of the commitments made, not just on the housing front, but really across the board for our Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander communities. And you mentioned Asian American hate earlier in our conversation. During the virtual event, the idea that this strategy would help in the efforts to stop Asian American hate and violence against the AA community was touched on a few times. And hate can be a pretty deep-rooted thing, as we've seen throughout history. And it seems like education and opportunity are just part of the solution to stopping it. How do you feel that the national strategy contributes to other ways to fight hate, like fostering compassion, community, and understanding? I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, in addition to combating 
anti-Asian hate, we know that there is so much more we need to do. We can't just respond to hate crimes and incidents after they happen, but how do we actually root out, you know, hate and at its root cause? And a lot of that does require us to promote greater education of our AA and NHPI histories, of our contributions and our accomplishments, you know, as Americans and, and looking how we can ensure that all Americans, regardless of whether you are living in Hawaii or somewhere in the continental United States, that they understand the contributions of our Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities and see us as truly belonging and, you know, as, as American. And so in our plan, in addition to identifying ways to ensure that our entirety of the Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community is aware of existing hate crimes resources produced by the Department of Justice, the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Education, there are a number of resources on how to address hate crimes and discrimination and bullying that are outlined in our national strategy. But we also have in there the need to promote inclusion and belonging of Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities. And that includes, as I mentioned, uplifting our histories, our educational backgrounds, our, you know, just all of our contributions to this country and, and making sure that there is greater visibility and awareness of that. Thank you so much for your time. Mahalo for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was Crystal Ka'ai, the executive director of the White House Initiative on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Look for uh, links to the equity plan by going to the conversation page of our website. Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student with a kindergarten to grade 12 admissions open house January 21st. Registration at parkerschoolhawaii.org. HPR's Atherton Concert Series is back in person. Every Saturday in February, join us at HPR's Honolulu Studios for performances from Uheuhene, Ene. Homaika'i, and the Galliard String Quartet with Raiatea Helm. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. another slice of local history for your ears this morning. As part of our continuing project with the University of Hawaii at Manoa Center for Oral History, we're focusing this month on stories of Native Hawaiian culture, family, and community. Uh, these values have been carried through massive social change, including in recent decades. The UH Manoa's North Shore Field School was a project from 2018 to 2021 that recorded the oral histories of 22 kupuna from Haleiwa and Wailua. They told stories of both change and continuity, and our guest this morning directed the field school and conducted many of those interviews. We'll talk in a few minutes with ethnic studies and anthropology professor Tai Kubika-Tengen, but first we hear him share some of those reflections. Born in 1942 along the Anahulu River in Haleiwa, Judy Venuka Minor Miram grew up playing with friends whose parents would equally feed and scold each of them as their own. She recalls living off the land and ocean prior to the construction of the Haleiwa Harbor between the 1960s and 1970s. It was a sandburb that had a concrete slab. It was probably something that they used during the war, but when we were growing up, it was just a slab. So we used to use that to roller skate. On the riverside, there was a fishing village. People actually lived there. And on this side is where the military had their training, but there was also a family who had the konohiki, and they used to surround fishing here. And it was hukilau. Everybody shared. Everybody went in the water and pulled out, brought the net up, and everybody 
got up on the sand and sorted it, whatever. No, you cannot go here. They started putting in the breakwater. It restricted our access to everything. We could still go on the breakwater that was over here, but it's not the same because they were starting to block off the water. So everything in here started to get pilau. Wasn't really as safe because you could get PPE, kupe'e, hauki-uki, a'ama, alamihi, everything. Everything started to disappear. We could pick limo in here. When they started building the breakwater, aole, we used to pick up limo ele'ele and put them on our hair and become mermaids. But it got to the point where there was no limo ele'ele. Even now, you cannot find. Keith Owai was born in 1953 in Honolulu and spent his first five years in Kona before the family moved to Haleiwa. Keith and his mom Kanani shared memories of how the Owai home brought together family and friends in ways that are seldom seen these days. Today, you get married, your birthday, you go rent a place and you, you know all this and stuff. Back then, everything happened in your yard. You plant an emu in your yard, you put a tent yeah. in your yard. We, oh, we you, had emu in your yard. Oh, yeah. yeah, but today cannot. Yeah, you, go, oh, so you, need, oh. you have to call you have to call the fire department and get clearance. Oh yeah. Because of all, all yeah. the yeah, but back then no need. You just make you just make it. You oh, know. Okay. Yeah, so that was and then um <laughs> we talk about last night, you know, it was like a five to ten day party. Yeah. We had the main event, yeah, but before that everybody come, you have party go after everybody goes, same thing. Everybody lingers and, and the party continues. Mm. So, yeah. Today, you rent the place, boom, pow, go home, and it's done. The times were different. Families were different. Um, uh, our days were different. We didn't spend so much time at work. Um, we, we didn't send kids off to go piano. Everybody did things at home. We, we, cl we climbed the mango tree. We picked up plums. We went uh, swimming in the river, you, you know? Uh, just the times are just so different. But change is good. Francis Ka'owa'o Gilman Forsyth told tales not only from his own childhood in Haleiwa and Waialua, but also those shared by his mother of an earlier time. Born in 1936 and deceased in 2020, his reflections on the importance of recording family and community stories carry special relevance today. We never did it when we were young, having this oral history. And so we missed out on a lot of things. You people having this, I think, is a great idea. I mean, even if maybe somebody else has a, a different mana'o about it, they say, oh, we did this, we did that. It doesn't matter. From a lot of different sources, you can kind of piece together what life is like. And I'm glad, like you say, you know, why did my parents teach us Hawaiian? Well, the only reason I can think is that they wanted to be more able to find a job when we, when we went to work. And English was a language that we had to learn. And uh, why did we not want to learn about our uh, ancestors? We had to play baseball or hopscotch or whatever. But I'm glad you people are doing it because you can pass it on. Something will come out of it that will say, oh, my parents told my grandparents told me that. I think that's a good thing about this thing. We've been hearing from Judy, Miriam, Keith, and Kanani Awai, and Francis Forsyth, along with Ethnic Studies Professor Tai Kavika Tengen. And we're happy to have Tai join us this morning in the studio. Good morning. Aloha, <laughs> Aloha, Catherine. Yeah, so you were the director of this oral history project, this North Shore Field School. Tell us about that work. Yeah, it was a project sponsored by Kamehameha Schools, their Aina Ulu program and run through our departments of anthropology and ethnic studies at UH Manoa. Um, it was a spring course that took about 20 students out into Waialua every Saturday uh, for 16 weeks. And it was training them in oral history methods, how to conduct interviews, but also how to form the right relationships of trust and, and respect in the community, really. Upholding the sense of kuleana, the responsibility to carry on the stories that are being shared with them. And so we did that um, starting 2018 for three years. Unfortunately, in 2020, it was interrupted by the pandemic. We tried um, again in 2021, although we weren't able to take the students out because, again, of safety. So that last class wasn't able to, to be in the field, though they were very um, involved in helping to work on these these transcripts and the editing of the interviews that were done previously. And and uh, I don't know, is this something that you do just regularly? This field work? It's it's a, a pretty unusual kind of course. Most courses do not involve this um, much field work. It, it was a real special opportunity. Of course, it you know requires funding and and other resources. 
Um, but we were able to uh, secure that from uh, Kamehameha, so we were able to do that for those three years. Um, there is another grant recently that um, our Center for Oral History and Ethnic Studies has been involved with um, that's going to do a new field school out in Waialee um, this coming fall, which will be um, it, it's on lands that previously were the university's livestock experiment station out by Kahuku. So there's an effort led by the North Shore Community Land Trust to make it a, a center of sustainability and, and culture. So uh, we'll be involved with some of those in, in this coming fall. Yeah, because that North Shore community, you know, has changed so much. You know, there's been an explosion of, of vacation rentals that we've seen and, and the gentleman farms and lots of things that have changed the kind of the fabric of that community. You've always see, you often hear, you know, keep country country, and yet you see these changes happen to these neighborhoods. Exactly. You know, these. this was, I think, one of the the main reasons we wanted to go out and record those interviews back in, in 2018 with the kupuna out from Waialua. It's, it's speaking to those broader changes in the North Shore that you're talking about that these kupuna themselves had witnessed and um, we're, we're not silent about. Many of them were very vocal in, in voicing their opinions, their opposition to those big changes that would really transform their communities. Um, one of the first things that we had heard about were, were the, the very lively uh, neighborhood board meetings where many of these community members we ended up interviewing were very active and, and present um, in opposing different developments that were, as you were saying, like these gentlemen farms and, and so forth. But really being able to share with their own grandchildren, right, and, and others the, the stories of how Wailua and Haleiwa used to be, right? And and to really find ways of coming together and, and bringing that sense of community back. And I think, though, to hear these stories from the residents, you know, whether it's Waikiki, because we have featured, you know, some of those stories about what it was like, you know, to go fishing down there and how kind of overfished it is. And and, and to hear the, the one auntie talk about all the limu, you know, and, and, and I just love that, you know, pretending you were a mermaid in the ocean. <laughs> Right, and and I think it's in, in Auntie Judy's case, you know, she's real clear. It's it's not only about how it used to be, but really to inspire that next generation to bring that back. That's really the work that's that's ahead of us. That's the importance of hearing these stories is to know that you know it, it used to be like that. But if if we come together and and focus on the health of our environment and and the waters that you know you start replanting limu these are efforts that are happening across the islands right um that it can come back it can be a part of of our our life again and that's looking ahead at the other project i mentioned at waialee that's really an effort there to restore uh, one of the the, the f- few freshwater fish ponds that are here in the islands kalo fish pond there um, to, to replant Kahlo, to make this a site of learning and, and building community again. Um, and hopefully, again, connecting all of those people who have the, those deeper histories of the North Shore to the land. Yeah, it's that sense of place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happens on the land affects the ocean. So, you know, it, it, it's just interesting, uh, you know, to tell these stories. Yeah, yeah. And there there's just so many of them. And, and really, we're hoping that the work that these field schools and the Center for Oral History and this series is is representing can inspire others to just go out and record those those stories of their kupuna, those those people who have these deeper experiences and connections to the land, wherever they may be. Um, these days, everyone has a recorder on their smartphone, so it's it's really easy just to sit down and take the time to just say, "Hey, Grandpa or Grandma, tell me what it used to be like here." Or if you do a walking tour, those are really the best. If you have them on the land and, and go walk with them, um, you know, the, that was one of the really more fruitful practices that we had in the field school to go out. In the case of Auntie Judy's, when she's talking about the changes to Haleiwa Harbor, we were actually sitting there at, at, at the Ali'i Beach Park, and, and she was looking out and talking about how the Anahulu River used to run there, but then it was, you know, diverted. And when they constructed the, the harbor and the, the ways in which the breakwater kind of changed uh, that landscape, um, but not only her, but a number of others um, who would take us out. Uh, Uncle Leif Anderson was another one who would take us up to his um, property up on Mauka and Opaiula, or his place at uh, right on the Anahulu River in a different area. 
another uncle um, took us to the family cemetery um, that that he would care for. So all the, all these different places and all the histories that were embedded there were so important and really what we found was really the relationships that came from them that then went beyond just the interviews were so important. We still stay in touch with many of these kupunas today. There's something so impactful when you hear it uh, from first person of what it was like. You know, I mean, we were talking the North Shore, but when we did the South Shore in Waikiki, we walked uh, with John DeFries down his street where he was born, and, and he really set the stage for what it was like as a kid, you know, getting guitar lessons from Johnny Alameda. And, you know, just you get a different sense, and then you're interrupted by a huge uh, a van, a, a, a tourist van, you know, a, a coming down that, you know, narrow street. But you do get a sense going out in the field. So when is the uh, that second project going to kick off? That second project will be happening um, this coming fall, um, so in, in August. Um, there's actually a, a community uh, event happening on Saturday to just introduce the, the overall UH project. Um, so people who are interested can contact the North Shore Community Land Trust. Yeah, that's exciting stuff, though, yeah, to be out in the field. There's nothing like it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we look forward to that, and hopefully, maybe this can be expanded uh, to some of the neighbor islands. I think it's a you know it's a wonderful concept that you've uh, brought out to the community. Indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ty. Mahalo. Well, we've been talking with uh, Ty Tengen, and you know this oral history project is supported by the Sharp Initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we focus on Ka'ena Point, as it is on the cusp of becoming Hawaii's first national heritage site. Ever hiked it? Got a story or memory to share? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation. Conversation.